We are live. Welcome to the green room for Disrupt TV. We've got a special co-host, Larry Din, and we've got Elle, our amazing producer. But of course, we've got our great guest. And so we'll introduce everybody in reverse order of appearance. So, so coming live, um, somewhere in New York City, Catalina, James, talk us, tell us some more what you're talking about today. And uh, where, where are you coming in from? Hi, we're calling in from uh, New York City, and we're here to talk about our book, Smart Startups. And I'm Jim Sherman, and here's a little picture of our just-published book, Smart Startups. <laughs> Ooh, look at that. Look at that. Let's see if we can digitize what, that. We've got Sorry? it digitally. There we go. <laughs> Ooh, impressive. Nice. Impressive. So, very cool. Look forward to hearing about the book. It's amazing, and uh, some really cool insights. So, so yeah, so cool. Welcome, welcome. All right, let's go to Trevor. Where are you coming in from? Hey, Ray. It's coming in from Scottsdale, actually. So, And uh, we're going to be speaking about generative AI today. And, of course, um, you know, it's top of mind uh, with ChatGPT and OpenAI, et cetera. And also talking about some of the challenges we're facing today in, the, in, this, in, in this amazing environment, right? So. Yeah, it is. I mean, can you think about it? Like last year, this time, no one cared what AI was. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So we're going to talk more about that. Oren, what are we talking about today? Hey, Ray, uh, coming in from uh, South Florida, and we'll be talking about what Signia is seeing in the cyber threat landscape, uh, some best practices that organizations can follow, and some in interesting trends. Got it. Other than, you know, maybe you don't want a $350 million ransomware attack. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but a large mid or casino somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, with that, hey, we're going to kick off the show, turn it back to you, Al. And uh, let's do the count. Ready, everyone? All right. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome. We're here with Disrupt TV today, and we've got some amazing guests here. But first, I'm Ray Wong with Constellation Research, and we got our special co-host, Larry Dingen. He's the editor-in-chief of Constellation Insights. Larry was most recently a Salonis Media's editor-in-chief, where he sat at the intersection between media marketing. He's also the former editor-in-chief of ZDNet. And if you followed ZDNet, this was the benchmark for B2B media. And he was there actually for more than two decades. And he's also published articles in CNET, Knowledge at Wharton, WallStreetWeek.com, Interactive TV, New York Times, and Financial Planning Magazine. So he's also an adjunct professor at Temple University. And if you were lucky enough to take his class, it is an amazing one. And he's also on the advisory board for the Fox Business School's Institute of Business and Information Technology. Welcome, Larry. Thanks, Ray. Glad to be here. Well, hey, thank you. And of course, he's subbing in for Bala Afshar. We're somewhere on a plane, but we're not going to tell where. But I'm here with our amazing guest. And it's not about us. It's about our amazing guest, starting with Owen Wartman. He's the VP of Cybersecurity Services at Signia. And more importantly, he's one with amazing amounts of cybersecurity experience. He's been here for 25 years talking about technology and security consulting, of course, serving as a trusted advisor to clients across a ton of verticals. And he's recently led a cybersecurity advisory practice at one of the leading cyber insurance brokerages. You'll have to tell us where, you don't have to be so mysterious. Anyways, he's also held the leadership and consulting roles at KPMG, Grant Thornton, RSA Security, ran his own consulting business in the healthcare tech space, and of course, serves as CTO for a New York-based publishing company. So he's often called upon by journalists, by the press, by leading and leading industry events to share his insights. And we're super absolutely happy to have him here. He's also a graduate of CUNY. So thank you for being here. You can follow him on Twitter at O-W-O-R-T-M-A-N. Welcome to the show, Oren. 
Thanks, Ray. Happy to be here. And uh, we'd definitely like to uh, be remiss. I would be remiss if I didn't start by uh, sending my thoughts and prayers to all my colleagues and friends and family who are uh, going through some difficult times uh, abroad in Israel. Uh, Signia is a company uh, headquartered in Tel Aviv, so obviously our thoughts and prayers are with them. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's quite an interesting situation. So uh, same as well. Larry, go ahead. All right. So uh, I'm very interested in cybersecurity, especially since all these companies have to disclose things now, which is fun for me, probably not so much for the companies. But um, why do you think this threat landscape is going to get worse in the next year? Uh, it's a great question, Larry, and it's uh, and you actually hit on one of the uh, hit on one of the reasons, and it's this uh, very complex landscape of uh, decision making that companies now have to go through uh, while facing a crisis. So you have uh, organizations in the middle of uh, of a battle, basically, and uh, they're they're challenged with uh, the new SEC regulation, four days to disclose. Obviously, this is. Uh, uh, compounding the complexity of, of decision-making and operating in a crisis. Uh, but that being said, why is the threat landscape itself becoming more treacherous? Uh, first of all, there's been a huge increase in volume uh, that we've seen from Q1 to Q2, especially Q2 to Q3, a little bit more incremental in nature. But if compared to the same time and same period last year, we're talking about almost a double in uh, the number of known ransomware attacks. Of course, there are many that are not reported, not disclosed. Uh, so this is definitely uh, one factor, um, is, is the increase in volume. I think there's also this uh, emergence of uh, new splinter groups, um, offshoots of uh, previously well-known groups, uh, ransomware as a service, which is this affiliate model, continuously increasing uh, in size and participation. Uh, and what this all leads to is a lot less predictability than we've seen in the past from the threat groups. Uh, so makes the, of course, uh, protection element more difficult, makes the response element a little bit more difficult, uh, and makes ultimately resolving this situation with these threat groups uh, more difficult. I think there are some other uh, forces at play. Um, we see capabilities and sophistication of the threat groups uh, increasing. Um, capabilities that were typically the domain and, uh, and, and uh, in the context of nation states. Uh, are now in the hands of these criminally motivated threat groups. So this, again, makes our uh, our day-to-day our -day jobs as defenders uh, significantly more difficult. Uh, and then I think, um, additionally, we see this increase, which uh, has been a trend. We saw it recently with Move It and Go Anywhere, uh, these software supply chain attacks where these uh, threat groups have, have realized that by actually uh, executing on one single attack, they can actually hit a much wider universe of, uh, of organizations and victims, uh, greater uh, increasing their ability to unfortunately monetize these things. Uh, there are also, of course, geopolitical trends at play. Um, and uh, let's, uh, we'll, we'll leave the current uh, crisis uh, off the table in that respect, but even going back to the Russia-Ukraine, going back to the isolation of certain uh, rogue nation states through sanctions, it increases their need to, uh, to create revenue, to create, uh, to monetize themselves. Uh, and so we, uh, we believe that there is a greater collaboration or a uh, freedom to act with a greater impunity in these nation states by these criminally motivated groups. Uh, and this, of course, uh, also uh, increases the complexity. Uh, and lastly, and, and as you mentioned, and uh, then the topic that will be talked about later, uh, the adoption of AI and other emerging technologies is also definitely increasing the risk of the landscape, right? The, the, the threat groups have a, a much faster adoption time of new technologies, uh, and we on the defender side are a lot more risk averse. Uh, this creates this race to adopt these new technologies and to utilize them both on the offensive and defensive side. While we see great possibilities for, for AI uh, in cybersecurity, uh, we do also have to be conscious that the threat actors are in fact racing to adopt the same technology. So this of course creates additional complexity. 
you know, my bots will be battling your bots. And my question is, why are we always on the defense? Why, why is there no offense, right? Why, why don't we go offense on Fin7 or Dark Side or UNC2452? I mean, you know, we're, we're like sitting ducks. Like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, these a, guys are syndicating. And, you know, I mean, every time we great. raise our insurance premiums, they're like, hey, you know, interesting pot of gold. Let's go for that. So it, it, it's absolutely a great question. And it's a question that clients ask us all the time. Why can't we, we, we have information, for example, sometimes a threat group will uh, accidentally leave some information behind about where their infrastructure is located or where they've exfiltrated the data to. And, uh, you know, clients will ask us, can we reach out and let's say hack back uh, to, to, you know, reclaim our stolen data. Uh, and this is the, the this is the line that we on the defensive side, on the ethical side of things, uh, we don't cross that line back. Uh, we leave this to law enforcement, um, but this is definitely a gray area and a question that comes up frequently. Uh, I'm waiting for some citizen activism. <laughs> back to you, Larry. <laughs> is, is is the idea that you can't strike back concerns about scale and focus? For instance, cybercrime, it's kind of what they do for a living. If you're an enterprise, you've got a business to run and all these other things to worry about. Is, is that why there's not, I mean, aside from me, if we took aside all the ethical stuff, is and that- the And the legality, right? Well, that too, details. <laughs> um, but but is, is, there, the gray is there a question of focus, right? Like you you hone in on what you're good at. And- it is it, it is absolutely, I agree, a question of focus, uh, but but this is an area where part where collaboration with trusted partners and industry experts, if it were legal, if there were not those ethical uh, concerns, then it would be possible, right? Because you do have players such as Signia who do have those capabilities, uh, but this is not a line that we cross for uh, the reasons that are mentioned. Got it. But but this list leaves most organizations like sitting ducks, right? They can't handle these threats. They can't handle these breaches, right? You don't know what you don't know. And and short of a funny PCmatic ad, I mean, like, I mean, seriously, I mean, you know, but w- w- what can they do, right? Because it's like, there's only so much you can spend. You can only allocate so much in your budget. And you're basically just playing a probability game here, right? Uh, you are. They're, they're you know, the, the, um, the, the common belief uh, in cyber defense is, of course, focused on what can we do to minimize the likelihood of such an attack hitting us. We There is no such thing as 100% secure, 100% prevention. Uh, but we do know that the there's a lot of commonality in the tactics and techniques that threat groups use that very basic measures that we as an industry have been talking about for many, many years, if just followed properly, could actually create additional resistance for the threat groups and prevent a great majority of attacks. Now, that's one side of it. The other side is minimizing the impact of those attacks, because again, it's about when it happens and how can you reduce the impact to your organization should such an event happen. And this goes into all of the topics around preparedness, ability to uh, detect in a, in a quick way, um, to respond in an efficient way, to not be making decisions during the crisis that are critical to the response effort, but actually knowing those decisions up front. Do we communicate through PR externally? Do we communicate to our customers? What are our regulatory requirements, uh, Larry, as you mentioned, in regard to the SEC disclosures um, and, and many other things? So there are many issues that can, in fact, be handled well in advance from a preparedness perspective, uh, as well as there are many steps from a defense prevention perspective that can be implemented. Um, and, uh, and and these we, we do see organizations who take these steps have a market difference in the, both the likelihood of such an event happening as well as the impact should it happen. So a, a prepared response is always going to be more efficient than an unprepared response. So as far as those responses where, you know, say you're, say some attack inevitably happens, which my guess is it will. Um, in your response, how much should you think about ransomware um, you know, payouts, 
is this a case where, you know, I'm kind of fascinated by the math behind it. Like, do you pay or not pay versus the, you know, you got to draw a line in the sand. It's unethical, et cetera. Um, but, you know, as we get more disclosures, we're probably going to see companies that actually, you know, have to disclose they paid something. Um, I, I guess, how do you think of it as, you know, an expert and third party? Yeah. And, and real quickly, like, I mean, take take like the case in Las Vegas, right? A hospital paid, a casino paid and another ho- and, a, and another casino decided that they, they weren't going to pay. Right. So, you know. Right. And and I would be curious to see how they look back in retrospect on that decision in some weeks, months from now. I mean, we've all seen the numbers as far as the impact to uh, to the organization. 10 million a day. 10 million a day so. Yeah, over 100 million in total, uh, whereas their competitor who did decide to pay uh, paid out, I believe it was uh, 15 million, million or, or whatever it was. Fact is, this is a Again, putting aside the ethical element of payment versus non-payment, I do not think that there should be a law passed uh, in in preventing organizations from making that decision. This should be a very personal organization by organization risk-based decision based on, of course, the impact to their business, their ability to recover. Listen, in in a perfect world, every organization would take the right steps from a technical disaster recovery perspective, have confidence in their ability to restore operations from such an attack, and then there would be no need to pay, right? Every organization would take better data protection steps around encryption and protection of data. And then again, there would be no need to pay. But assuming that you have those impacts, this is very much an organization by organization and needs to be uh, left at that level, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a that's crazy. Go, go ahead, Larry. Sorry. So, so if you do pay out, what what steps do you have to make to make sure you're not hit again? Is I mean, I guess honor, the remediation probably thieves? looks the same, right? Is there honor among thieves? Is really the question. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so historically speaking, and and this is changing a little bit with a lot of these splinter groups, but historically speaking, there is honor amongst thieves in this in this case. Uh, we've actually received in, in the course of many uh, ransomware negotiations that we've conducted for our clients on their behalf, uh, we've received many messages and the message is fairly standard. Our reputation is more important than money, they say, because at the end of the day, if they don't follow through with their commitments to not disclose the data to, not, to without providing you a decryption mechanism, nobody will ever pay them going forward. So in that respect, they do value their reputation. Now, as far as then getting hit by a different group, of course, there's no guarantee that you wouldn't. Uh, And remediation, you're correct, does look very much the same, whether you pay or don't pay. You still have to figure out what were the root causes of uh, of the attack? How did they get in? How did they compromise our systems? And make sure that those things are closed down appropriately. So, so where does purple teaming come into all this from a proactive defense or what, when do I apply like, you know, adversarial security, right? What, what, what are this people is, looking at for those things? It's a, this is a great question, Ray. So uh, we, we at Signia actually embed adversarial tactics simulation into almost every engagement that we do on the proactive side of the house. Uh, we feel that this is really one of the main and most important ways that you can truly understand what is the universe of possible from a tactics and techniques perspective that a threat actor can uh, execute in your environment, and then prioritize the remediation steps in the context of what was truly executed in your environment. Now, purple teaming is a really interesting one because it serves a dual purpose, right? So A, it's actually doing that adversarial simulation so you're building out true kill chains as we call them uh, to see what a threat actor can do but it has a uh, a focus on training for organizations security operations teams and incident responders so we can actually see how well are they detecting what we're doing how well are they responding to what we're doing and how well are they shutting it down and then training those teams on new techniques to actually detect quicker uh, and also respond in a more efficient way. 
So is that kind of the ROI? Like if you're if you're looking at this from the enterprise buyer perspective is, I mean, and a lot of times working with cybersecurity, right? It's it's preventing some, the ROI is a little fuzzier because you're preventing something as opposed to, you know, some productivity gain. Um, is, is that sort of, you know, testing and simulation, is that part of the, I guess, part of the ROI? You know, we 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 spoke earlier about um, you know we're just sitting here like uh, we're sitting ducks, and uh, what can we do? Uh, the preparedness element, and when I say preparedness, this is on in many ways uh, and across many organizational aspects, right? So there's of course at the executive level, preparedness around crisis management, decision making, legal, regulatory, PR, comms. So that's one side of it, but at a technical level. The ROI is, in fact, in training their, their responders, their, uh, enhancing their detection capabilities, enhancing their visibility within their own environment. You know, something that we like to use as an example uh, and, uh, and an analogy from, uh, let's say, more uh, terrestrial uh, warfare, right? Know the terrain. And this is something that we know from uh, conventional and, and, uh, and, and terrestrial uh, conflict. Uh, this is very similar in cyber war because there, we, we do have something to our advantage. Uh, to our advantage, we know every single time where the battle will be fought. It will be fought in our networks, yep. in our cloud environments, yep. in our manufacturing facilities. And we own those environments. We are doing as an industry uh, a, a huge disservice to ourselves by not having proper visibility, not having a comprehensive asset management program, having as organizations shadow IT. So IT that's not under any central governance structure, assets pop up, nobody knows what they are, are they protected properly? So. ROI is absolutely about training and enhancing capabilities again not necessarily with the it, the sole intent of prevention but the faster you can detect and the more efficiently you can respond at the end of the day is the only thing that will minimize impact and that really is uh, is the end game is the impact yeah no this is wild and uh, i think a lot of organizations are trying to make that cost benefit analysis that larry's talking about do we pay more now do we invest more now do we hit the ransomware what's the likelihood what's the probability how do we make that decision so we're here with Orrin Wartman, Vice President of Cybersecurity Services, Signia. Thank you so much for being on the show and scaring the crap out of no, kidding. Thank you so much for being on the show and uh, giving us something to think about. So Thanks so much. Twitter Thanks. or X, depending what you want to call it, at O-W-O-R-T-M-A-N. So good luck to your team. So Thank you. Thanks. Wow. And yeah, from cybersecurity, scary. what else can we talk about to scare the crap out of us? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so there's a lot going on here. And of course, we have our next guest. And, uh, and we're going to be talking a lot about this topic, uh, which is going on since November last year. So let's bring on our next guest here, Trevor. Thank you for being here. Trevor Templer is the CEO of Vizio, of Vizio AI. Uh, he's in the present CEO. And of course, this is a revenue operating system that helps uh, go-to-market teams deliver really good forecast. 98% is what they say. And of course, win more deals with an AI chief of staff. Don't we all want one? Trevor architected that guided selling vision for Vizo, uh, driving 20 plus patents across conversational intelligence, auto ML, AI sync, uh, and people graphs. I love graphs. You guys all know that. He crystallized more than 20 years of the B2B selling experience in the first end-to-end -end single revenue platform with secure underlying AI. And Trevor leads Avizo's mission to provide every sales team an AI-guided future where humans and AI work together to exceed expectations and goals. Prior to that, Trevor helped industry leaders embrace advanced sales technologies as CRO at Tact AI, Cypher Cloud, and as a SaaS board advisor. He also drove Salesforce's transformation as a leader from mid-market to large enterprise from 2009 to 2014, going from 800 million to 4 billion, and of course, quickly moving and scaling its top producing region, growing it also into an enterprise behemoth. So we can follow, we can follow him on Twitter, at T Templar, or X, if you like to call it that. And uh, thank you for being on the show. Welcome to the show, Trevor. Well, well Ray, it's a pleasure. And uh, wow, that was some introduction. Uh, what am I to talk about anymore? I mean, you just you just laid out everything about me and what we do. But uh, it's exciting. Right, we're good. Let's go to your AI bot. We'll have them do all the yeah. talking. 
<laughs> yeah, I know, I know. That's that's the point, right? I mean, taking the suck work out of our day, you know, as as A's, um, you know, having been uh, at McKenzie and then, of course, uh, you know, actually carrying a bag versus talking about it uh, as an AE, which was which was uh, which was transformational for me. Uh, and then, of course, as an SVP, EVP, etc., running large enterprise sales at Salesforce, I think I've never met an uh, account executive, you know, who gets up in the morning has a cup of coffee and is like, I'm so excited about updating CRM today, sweetheart. This is just going to be an amazing day, right? So. You just haven't met the right sales rep. I don't know what you're talking about. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, Ray, I know Ray. I'm looking at that unicorn right now who's like, hey, I love CRM, Trev. I mean, you know, it just gives me so much value, right? So, <laughs> so I guess let, let's let's start at the top. Um, sure. What's what, What's the pitch for... A visa. What's you know? What's I guess? What's the dream? What's the problem you're trying to solve? Look, you know, in, in this environment, I mean, we you know we're facing the we're facing uncertainty on every side, right? And you know, both from the gamut of you know uh, macroeconomic events in terms of you know an inverted yield curve, you know, interest rate yields that go up one day, go down the next, um, you know, geopolitical issues which. Some could say, you know, a black swan events. I think of them more as gray rhino because I think <laughs> at the end of the day, all of us expected something to happen. The question was when, where, and it was about time. Uh, the sheer, the sheer uh, immensity of what's happened, you know, in Israel and, and the terror there is, is just is, is highly unfortunate. Um, but in this, in this scenario, as a sales rep, you know, uh, the ability and as a revenue leader, the ability to predict revenue, mitigate risk, and really deliver quarter after quarter, you know, to your to your board, um, you know, obviously if you're a startup, if you're private or private equity, or to the street, you know, is uh, is, is tantamount to whether or not you're going to be in this job, you know, 12, 16, 18 months down the road. So Visa was built um, AI first, or purpose built, you know, with AI in mind, and we think of ourselves as the operating system for revenue today. And uh, what's unique about a Visa is our ability to really be able to map out what we call the deal flow, right? Uh, right from uh, leads, uh, marketing campaigns, marketing attribution, um, you know, engagement, first engagement as we call it, and then and then moving through the deal cycle. And then of course, you know, what's really important um, and top of mind for most CROs and CEOs today is revenue retention, right? Uh, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And it's important to be able to keep your uh, customers with you, you know, serve them in a manner that's, uh, you know, that addresses their their requirements and needs, and and, and makes and ensures that a competition doesn't come in and take them away. Uh, I think uh, SaaS as a whole, you know, you know, is uh, turned on its head upside down. I mean, if you ask folks two years ago, you know, you sold a multi-year contract, and um, yeah, that was it. I mean, but unfortunately, in this environment, multi-year contracts are only worth what's on what's on paper. So, if you're not seeing the alarm signals way up front in terms of whether or not you're really addressing value for your customers, you know, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a very short tenure, you know, as a CRO. And uh, the average tenure right now in Silicon Valley is about 18 months, uh, which is which is crazy, right? Because that means you get about three or six months before you get up to speed, find the toilet. Uh, to, uh, Try to understand what your team can deliver, and then of course the board's like, "Well, are you gonna are you gonna blow your numbers out, and are we gonna expect 100% growth?" Because guess what, your predecessor was amazing. Albeit your predecessor was there in an economic environment which is vastly different, but those small details just tend to be glossed over, don't they? So. <laughs> well, you better get a good, better be a darn good demand gen person. I mean, yeah, exactly, exactly. But, but, but here, here's the here's the basic problem. Let, let's let's. Mm -hmm. Let's just say it. Salesforce automation doesn't work. It is manual. It is tedious. Like I'm doing all the work. What the heck happened? Why don't we just fix SFA, right? I've got rev intelligence. I got rev optimization. Yeah. I got sales engagement, right? I got rev data op platforms. Like all this stuff is trying to fix the basic problem that SFA doesn't work. Let's just fix SFA. I'm sorry, get you all riled up. Like yeah, why don't we just fix do. SFA? I mean, you know, but you got to realize, right? Right from and I'm a student of history because, you know, I believe at the end of the day, <laughs> if you don't pay, if you, if you don't pay attention to what's happened in the past, you, you, you know, you're, you're bound to repeat your, you repeat those mistakes in the future. Right. Uh, and uh, if you go, go right back to when Tom Siebel first went to Larry. Right. And I'm dating myself, yep. you know, obviously. Yep, yep, yep. Oasis, but, uh, Oasis, Oasis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and he was like, look, you know, I need something to be able to, 
you know, track these billions of dollars in software, Larry, and not have a reputation, uh, not have a re reputation of 1990. Excel, Excel. Right, right. So, and, and Larry was like, yeah, great, go build a spreadsheet. So he leaves and goes and forms Siebel, right? And uh, and at Siebel, it was there, there was this thing about 360 degree view of the customer, which all of us thought was amazing, right? Oh my God, I'm finally going to be able to understand what my customer is doing, uh, you know, the deals. I mean, which rep wouldn't love that, right? <laughs> the one Unfortunately, you know, it turned into more something that a CRO or upper management use to inspect deals and monitor deals and tell you what you're not doing versus really trying to help the AE understand how he could put more dollars in his pocket. And we're strong believers that, you know, we're here to cure the sins of the past, right? Uh, I worked at Salesforce and I really thought that Salesforce was going to be vastly different. And for a while it was agile and loved by everyone. I'll be that was the tallest midget in the room because at the end of the day, you know, Salesforce was marginally better than Siebel, right? Siebel had all these bells and whistles. Half the time you couldn't understand, you know, what they were there for, but they looked cute and they looked amazing and filled the spreadsheet out, check, 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 right? Yep. But um, but for us, you know, when I was at Salesforce, I had to mandate that my AEs uh, put in put in their deals into Salesforce, otherwise I wouldn't pay them. Unfortunately, that's not the message you can take to market today. It's a different generation and there's options out there, even in this economic environment. So the real question is, how can you delight the end user, right? And how can there be an exchange of value between the company and the end user so he can value out of it? And that's one of the reasons, you know, we're so excited about Mickey. Uh, we're seeing about 96 to 98% adoption across the enterprise, which you know is unheard. I mean, Salesforce is at best 16 to 18%, right? Uh, on a weekly or daily basis, but people are living in Mickey and people are living in a Viso because they've got the ability now to, at a very basic level, to talk to data. And when I say talk to data, they can use Mickey to update Salesforce. So they check mark. They can use Mickey to go and look at the last Zoom call they had, understand what the sentiment was in that call, understand if they were buying signals, uh, take that information, write an email, and share it with their executive, right? So don't call me up. Here's all the details you want. You can go into a Visa and look at it, but guess what? If you've got an anathema to operate, you know, to, to revenue operation systems, let me double down for you. Here's an email spelling it out for you, you know, Mr. SVP, Mr. EVP, et cetera, right? And, uh, and, and that's amazing because, like I said, it takes that grunt and that suck work out, you know, that, that rote work that, that takes up so much time. It frees up 10 to 15%, uh, you know, of your day. We're, we're looking at anywhere from 10 hours to 12 hours of work that AEs can use now to do what they do best, which is spend time with their customers understand what their customers are doing. And we go further, right? When when I was at um, when I was at you know at uh, PeopleSoft and then we got bought by Oracle and you know and then Salesforce of course at Oracle I did my first year there I did 1400% of my number. And obviously I was a section 21, you know, they had to report me and all that because I had a 3.5 million dollar commission check. Not, yep. not yeah, you know, <laughs> on a 4 million dollar quota, I did 160 million, which was unheard of. We broke the curve, right? But I was, I was probably the least experienced sales rep in the entire company for my first year in sales. But what I did do was I, I just took the philosophy I had at McKinsey, which is you work 16 hours a day and you outwork the person on the right, you outwork the person on the left, you learn more about your customer. And then, of course, you get lucky and have a Scott McNeely, who's a good buddy of yours, who's your sponsor at Sun. And then you get lucky and you have uh, a great sponsor at Dell. And then you're lucky again. And, you know, since you work so hard, you get a great sponsor like John Chambers, right? So with those three folks, they kind of helped me get to my number, I will say. But uh, where I was going with that is, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, looking at 10Ks, pouring over them, which... You know, it's not something that's a fun task for most AEs out there, right? Looking at your, looking at the last earnings call, trying to understand, you know, executive backgrounds, trying to understand what what have people actually sold them before because it was a mess. The data wasn't anywhere. It was in ten different systems, right? And 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 then going in every conversation with something of value that I felt my customers would really would really want. And uh, Mickey does that for you today. I mean, you go to Mickey and say, hey, pull up the last earnings call of a new customer do an analysis, what are the M&A objectives, map that to my product set, done, right? Hey, Mickey, can you go update Salesforce for me, change the stage? Can you update next steps for me with the last call I had with the customer? Or maybe your customer doesn't like coming on Zoom. So you say, hey, the last email I got from him, can you look at that, look at the sentiment of that email? 
what do you what do you think of the risk with any competitor mentions can you pull that out write a summary for me so i can send it to my se i can send it to the other folks in the organization and you know all of this you're probably thinking trevor that's not possible but it is and i'll tell you why because you know in some ways people look at chat gpt open ai as being this uh silver bullet, all this, this white knight, and it's not, right? You got to understand what generative AI is. And generative AI, at, at a very basic level, it's, it's, you know, it's about syllogisms, right? So all men are mortal, or all women are mortal. <laughs> so I want to be both. So Aristotle's a mortal, or Cleopatra's a mortal. Take your pick, right? But either way, that's a syllogism, right? And what 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 uh, ChatGPT and OpenAI do a very effective job is what we call, if, if you're in computers, of course, it's easy to understand this, autocomplete. It autocompletes your sentence based on the fact that it's gone through you know huge amounts of data, uh, you know found 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 this found, found the uh, found data that that that's a simile or looks at data that helps uh, provide information about what you want to you know complete your sentence with or find information about. What it can't do is complex computations. And when you're saying complex computations, you're going to say, well, Trevor, but I've seen, uh, you know, OpenAI, you know, there was an interview, you know, with with Bill at, at Microsoft and uh, and basically it passed, you know, this level A exam. Yes. I mean, if you think about pi, right, it's one of my favorite numbers. So when you look at pi, um, 3.1415, right, most people know that. And if you want to be cute, you can go and say, okay, well, 926, 535. Uh, 897. If you want to be really cute, you can say 93, you can then go to 932, 384, 795, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I can go to 31 decimals. And I have a limited corpus because, you know, I'm a human being, right? But I'm also autistic. So I can, with numbers, I can go a little further, right? But uh, ChatGDB can look at, um, can look at basically three trillion decimals. And I don't, I know, I know it's, it's, it's useless information, but to give you an example, three trillion decimals in about 21 days. So 21 days to calculate three trillion decimals, right? So it can do that. But if I ask ChatGPT, tell me what the temperature is on the seventh moon of Jupiter, it's going to look at me and be like, I'm an AI system, and I don't know what you're talking about, right? Because that information doesn't exist. We'd have to send you know, a space flight out there to the moon, get that information, then ChatGPT could use it. So what I'm going with this is you need a combination of ChatGPT, and you need a combination of NLP and uh, machine learning and deep learning models to provide the insights, and then you can talk to data. And that's what Mickey is, and that's what we did. Hope that helps. But that was a primer in, uh, in why I think Nikki's special. So, so if, if I'm to boil this down, I mean, you, you've said a few things that kind of stuck out in my head where mm -hmm. the one was, you know, the CRO last 18 months, which is about the same as the CMO. So they both get thrown out the same time for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and if I'm listening to what you're describing, this is essentially a life hack because marketing, sales, and demand gen are so damn dysfunctional and the data splattered all over the place. Is that yep. roughly correct? That's a really good line. I'm going to use that marketing line. Because, you know, <laughs> I just gave you your marketing that was, that was impressive, Larry. I've never thought of it that way, right? Uh, you, you know, sometimes I think it's good to understand the forest from the trees, and Larry just did that for me. But it is well, a it's, it's almost like, do you... Do you wait for these numbnuts to restructure and transform so they do all this stuff, which will take years and never happen anyway, because they only got 18 months? Yeah. Or do you just have this AI layer to eh, make them a little mis less dysfunctional? Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, you've got these amazing sales leaders out there, right, uh, who are frustrated because they got six different systems, eight different systems. Uh, there's different code lines, as you guys are aware. By the time you finish one implementation, they got another version out, so then you're going to start that. <laughs> so there's no single source of truth, right? And and that's the challenge, right? And that's where Visa comes in from an architectural perspective, Larry. And you probably made the perfect, the perfect entree, which is basically we sit across all these systems, and because we're able to pull insights from all these systems, at the end of the day, what Mickey really is is a different kind of UI. It's a conversational UI, right? That's really what what generative AI is. It allows you at a very basic level to talk to your data or talk to AI. And that's what Mickey's doing. It's it's not like you know it's not like solving world hunger, but what it is doing is a life hack where now you have access to information in a ubiquitous fashion throughout the enterprise across all the systems. You can go and do your job on day one without knowing how to use Salesforce, without knowing how to use Marketo, without knowing how to use Aviso. And why should you? You are not hired to be an expert in my software. You are hired to go sell and close business, be an expert in your company's product, as you as you well know. 
and put dollars in your pocket and you know at the end of the day deliver some exciting results so i can i can be a cro <laughs> for the next six years right so. <laughs> okay so 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 what is interesting is that we, we keep talking about ai and mm -hmm. the second most talked about item other than ai is plg out here in the valley yep, yep. Right? everyone's talking about product-led growth that's great their sales motions all over the crap challenger sales is dead thank god and <laughs> what are we doing you know in this model like people are trying to sell differently but the the it's a weird market this is a very bizarre economic market so what are you seeing trends wise so trends wise, what we're seeing is, you know, we're seeing an opportunity for for being from going from good to great, right? And what I mean right. by that is, you know, you can make your your chops in this market. Uh, for ten years, you threw a dart uh, at the board and you got a deal. And I'm I'm not, I mean, because you have this, you had, you had free money, you had low interest rates, uh, no one wants to own one percent of the bank, so why don't I invest it in software? That's you know the, the best thing out there, right? And with that free money, you could go out with a shopping cart and buy every single piece of software in the world. So you have PLG motions, of course, and we're seeing uh, PLG has its place. So does consumption forecasting, which Avizo does, and Avizo prides itself on being yep. 90 to 99% accurate in consumption forecasting for companies like New Relic, which most people think I'm telling them a story until they speak to New Relic. And then they're like, how do you well, do well, it? Well, right? Hold on, hold on. If you're, if you're that accurate on consumption yeah. models, yeah. right, can yeah. you get actually on dynamic pricing for software? Well, yeah, because if you're looking at direct pricing for software, it's it's market supply and demand, right? So, for yeah, but, example, but, but there's always that sales rep at the end of the quarter that discounts the deal that screws everything up in the dynamic pricing model. And, and that's where that's where transparency is key, right? Because because what we do is we send we send something called notification. So, what we do is when we see a rep going in a direction where he's gonna he's gonna basically, for lack of a better word, pull his pants down, we give him some, a couple of hints. <laughs> One, here's the historical discount rate. Here's the historical behavior of this customer in terms of their buying motion in the last week of the quarter. They do this every time because, because you know, believe it or not, human beings are creatures of habit. We may not realize it, but but psychologically, we do the same thing every year. And every year, you know, some customers have trained their procurement teams to go in Q4, yep. last week of the quarter, disappear yep. for three or four days, come on the last day, and you're going to pull your pants down, right? So, I, I always weird. buy my car December 31st. What about you? Well, there you go. See that that's what I mean, right? Um, believe it or not, when we were at at at, at Oracle, well, Salesforce closes its closes its business about five about five o'clock in the evening because they're they're always so amazing, right? And I got a heart attack when that happened the first time I was there. But when I was at Oracle, we go to like 1229, 1229.5. Hawaii time? Hawaii? Like like you know what? I asked them if I could open an office in Hawaii. So I got the extra three hours and they looked at me like I was smoking something good. Right. But I literally asked them that same year, I did 1400% of my number. I could have done 1600% and I missed a deal because it came in at 1237. Believe it or not. And it didn't get booked. Right. So, well, well, you know, once you make that deal cut and then you go to Autobahn Motors on 1231 and at, you know, 7 PM and go, cut the deal too, go. you get your car and you're yeah. good to go. <laughs> We're here. Trevor Tyler, having an amazing conversation about the future of revenue, revenue ops, and of course, where people are actually heading in revenue platforms. Um, he's the CEO of Aviso AI. Thank you for being here. You can follow him on Twitter or X at T Templar, T E M P L A R. Thank you for being on the show. Pleasure. Thank you so much, guys. Take care. Good chat. All yeah. right. That is crazy. <laughs> yeah i just... just gotten deep into like best practices on cybersecurity, best practices on revenue and now i'm going to introduce two interesting guests who've written an amazing book so i think our theme so far has been dysfunction <laughs> dysfunction and revenue dysfunction and cybersecurity, and now we're talking startups so I, hopefully there's less dysfunction in these startups <laughs> well hey Plus we're gonna welcome career effects, right we're gonna welcome catalina daniels and of course jim sherman i'm gonna read your bios uh in serial uh, order so, so Catalina, welcome. Catalina Daniels graduated from HBS in 1991 and the Free University of Brussels. She spent the last first 17 years of her career at McKinsey, where she became a partner, and then she left and became an entrepreneur and eventually an angel investor. She's a venture partner at Entrepreneurs Roundtable Accelerator, which is ERA, and the prominent New York-based tech accelerator, where she actually mentors U.S. entrepreneurs and helps non-U.S. entrepreneurs figure out how to expand in the U.S. Catalina sits on multiple boards and loves coaching young entrepreneurs. A Belgium national, she splits her time between New York, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Spain. So welcome to the show, Catalina. Great to be here. Thank you. 
We're excited to have you. Jim Sherman, also an HBS graduate. This is a nice cohort in 1991. I know a lot of people in that 91 cohort. Uh, and Stanford uh, University. So, and he started his career at Bain & Company as a consultant and spent several years working in media with Time, Inc. and Pearson. And in 1997, he launched the internet division for Martha Stewart Living. He also became a serial internet entrepreneur, launching three ventures, including an internet strategy consulting firm, Sherman's Travel Media, and an e-commerce firm. And he also became an active investor in New York startups and has been a mentor to entrepreneurs and sits on the board of HBS Alumni Angels of New York. And he lives in Manhattan and Bellport, New York. Jim, welcome to the shore. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Yeah, we're really happy to have you here. So let's talk more. Likewise, we're, we're delighted on this beautiful day from sunny Manhattan. Ah, there we go. Look at this. Smart startup. Ah, there it is. There it is. Ah, how'd you do that? That's great. <laughs> so I, I guess let's just start at the top. Why did you why did you write the book and what were some of the surprises? Well, um, you know, in a nutshell, the reason we wrote the book is that there's a very interesting statistic out there that of all seeded startups, 70% of them actually fail. Oh, yeah. It's a pretty shocking statistic. Only 10% have any measure of success. So the odds are pretty much stacked against you. And the reason that we wanted to write the book, as it outlined Ray earlier, both of us have been entrepreneurs. We thought it would be more powerful to interview other HBS founders of companies and gather their collective wisdom and what they wish they had known, what they may have learned the hard way, uh, and basically try to help people improve their odds of success in starting off on this journey. Yeah, oh, and to answer your other question, sorry about some surprises, maybe Catalina, you want yeah, to I mention? Yeah, I can comment that we get that question quite a lot and it's it's really difficult to answer because there have been many surprises. Um, so we've been there, done that, uh, talked to all these people and, um, you know, frankly, we started off with uh, some thoughts about what we would write about in the book, what the content of the book would be like, and ended up with something totally different. Um, one of the surprises, just to mention one, is um, the founding team and what it should look like. Okay, so there is this myth that a two-some or a three-some is best founding team for a startup a CEO and a CTO, and then possibly next to that, a CMO or a COO, depending on the startup. That's the myth. That's the founding team you want to have. Well, in our research and in our interviews, um, we have something else. Everything works. Um, you can go solo. Uh, we saw a team of five recruited by a headhunter, fairly unusual. We saw uh, a mom with her son, a married couple, best friends. Um, all of the previous I've mentioned uh, don't take the box of the typical two or threesome, you know. And so the message we have is the founding team should be something that works for you as an individual rather than something that is set to two or threesome. Um, first thing you need to figure out is can you go solo? Do you go solo and some people would rather go solo because they like to take decisions by themselves they don't want to be burdened by somebody else they don't need the emotional support so they just want to go so if you're a first-time entrepreneur it's probably a little bit dangerous or more difficult to go solo but you know some some did and some were some were successful at it now if you don't want to go solo um you need to find a co-founder but it doesn't need to be an equal co-founder. It could also be a junior co-founder. And whatever co-founder you get on board, what really matters is two things. One is shared values. You'd better have shared values and a shared vision because otherwise, first big problem, big bump in the road, you might get into difficult discussions. So when choosing a co-founder, one of the most critical things is shared value. And then the other thing is thinking about the skills you need to pull off the business, okay? And so, um, yeah, uh, those those are things that are more important than the two-sum or the three-sum, I would say. You know, th this is some great unconventional wisdom, right? That's really what your book is about, right? You're yeah. breaking all the rules, all the conventional wisdoms that are there. And, and okay. I think that's, that's a very important thing. 
right? Uh, but I do want to actually turn it around on you because the book's about these other 18 co-founders. You founded yep. Sweetwell, which is the sugar uh, sugar uh, replacement. And, uh, yep. you know, we got Hampton's yeah, Lane Hampton's over Lane. on the other, other side from, uh, you know, Jim, right? And Hampton's Lane was like, you know, pretty successful. So what, what did you guys learn in those experiences that seemed oh. different than what was going on in the book? So. Um. Well, actually, sure. I mean, uh, in terms of uh, Hamptons and what we learned in the book, my gosh, um, I think that uh, one of the surprises, I think, for sure, is how creative people were in in validating demand. And uh, I think that, to be honest, in my case with Hamptons Lane or with Sherman's Travel that I started, uh, went forward in you know one what I would consider a very traditional direction. However, in, when we did our interviews with the founders of other companies, I was really impressed with how creative they came up with validating demand without spending practically a dime. And so in other words, let's give a couple examples. With Rent the Runway, they never yep. even did a wait. Uh, Jen and Penny got going literally by doing pop-up shops, pop-up stores yep. on college campuses with racks of clothing that they borrowed actually from friends, designer dresses. And they wanted to merely validate, did women uh, want to rent a dress. This has not been done before. Would there be demand for this? Not only did they do, they, they not only had pop-ups, but they videotaped the interaction with the customers. And that was really so that they could demonstrate to their potential investors, which are mainly uh, were men, frankly, who didn't have a good feel for the opportunity, want to demonstrate the passion that their customers had for this. Anyway, it was very important that another example would be really a super a sort of really effective at how they went at this uh, with Yumble Kids, uh, uh, fresh meals for children, yep. uh, saving the parents time and having to prepare anything. Dave Park, founder, before they did a, a, a functioning website, there were no back-end operations here, no, nothing complicated. They spent no money. Literally, all they did was post on a Facebook mommy group. And in the Facebook mommy group, they put up the offer of, getting these meals freshly prepared for your children. And they wanted to test the response to this. And they were flooded with parents that wanted to take them up the offer. And they literally were running the operation out of their own apartment kitchen. And his wife, Joanna, personally did the deliveries to, uh, to their customers in New York in the very beginning. And they were thrilled when they got a dollar tip. <laughs> I, I, I can feel the passion, you know, like coming from you, from their passion, which is the fuel. Um, and, and you know, when, when you determine travel media, right, that there's a passion there. That's something you love doing. Right. And uh, and, and to you, Catalina, like what's the passion for sugar replacement? Right. That, that you're looking at there. Um, well, that's a very interesting question. And I think passion is a trait that we track with everybody we interviewed. And I think it's a trait of entrepreneurs. In my case, it's a great question to ask, what was my passion for sugar replacement? It was actually driven by the fact that I wanted to help a lot of people not have sugar. You know, I have an aunt who died from diabetes. Um, I've always had too much sugar in my blood. Uh, thank God. And I'm knocking on wood here. I don't have diabetes. Uh, but it was for me a way to basically do something that, you know, in, in my own sense, the, would make the world a better world. Um, and that's what we've heard from many of the entrepreneurs we talked to. It was not about, I mean, making money. Yes, it's important in the end, but it was not the first goal. The first goal was to create something um, and the freedom to do so. So I'm hearing, you know, a decent amount of ingredients to what makes a good idea and something to pursue. I guess when when do you know, like if you have this idea, you have the passion, you think it might make money, you solve some problem of some sort. When when do you know it's go time and I should give this a whirl? Well, I think that the key point and we actually have a chapter in the book that is titled good feedback is not good enough. And, and, and really that's the essence of it because you need massively good feedback for whatever idea you are pursuing. And, and so we, yeah, this was emphasized frankly by several entrepreneurs. All of them. All, yeah, all of them because 
Um, if, if and in retrospect, if the if the feedback wasn't massively good, well, those were the you know we have a handful that didn't quite succeed, and you can look back at you know the history, and it was because they had massively good feedback. So it's very important to add the right people. So it can't be just you know your friends or your family. You need to ask the right people. And as one of the entrepreneurs, Justin from Henry the Dentist, you could throw out the top fifteen uh, percent that are overflowing praise, throw out the bottom 15% and really look at that middle 70%. Where is, what's, what back are you getting from those people? So you need to really uh, look at that qualitatively. Uh, and in addition, it's just really important to understand that you're getting the feedback from the right constituencies. So for example, in the case of Sky and Eric Price, you know, recognizes this, he didn't really talk to all white people. He based too much of it. This was a, a, a dermatology app. And between his mother, he was a co-founder with his mom, who's a dermatologist. And he relied a bit too much on her own instincts, her own passion for the product, instead of talking to dermatologists around the country uh, or talking to the, uh, the end users of the app, frankly, uh, the, the, the patients, those that would use it and would they pay for it. So you have to be very careful to get the feedback from the right people. It has to be massively good. Uh, another quick example is uh, Matt Salzberg of Blue Apron. Uh, prior to launching Blue Apron, he had another venture, by the way. It was called Petri Dish. It was a crowdfunding site for science projects. Yep. He said it was, it was reasonably successful. It was okay, but it wasn't massively successful. He wasn't getting the massively good feedback uh, compared to later when he launched Blue Apron. The feedback from Blue Apron customers were, you know, he'd get emails that said, you saved my marriage with this product. <laughs> you know, good feedback is not good enough sounds pretty obvious, but frankly, in the mindset of an entrepreneur, when you have an idea in mind, when you have a product that you're developing, an MVP or whatever, you really believe in it and you only want to hear the feedback. And so it's, it's really critical to basically be open to what people tell you and not to go for it until you get this overwhelmingly positive feedback because every invested time and money you're going to put in there might be worth it because you're going to be thrown back to the drawing board uh, to, to basically you know change your product until you get that overwhelmingly positive feedback all right so i got the right team i got the right product now i gotta go raise some money right how to how to how, you know uh, we're in a down market. Unless you're an AI startup, nobody cares, right? Like, how do you raise mark? How do you raise money the right way? And you also have a very important point in the book. How do you raise money in the right way so that you have the right exit? So. Ah, well, now you've got okay. You've got uh, you've you've asked a bunch of questions in there, and and we can tease out only some of that, I think. But in a tough market, I think in in to raise the first question we like to ask always is, do you need to raise venture capital? You know, it's a very important question to ask. Can you get the business and grow it to a nice size without it? Josh Hicks of Plated pointed out there are many wonderful business ideas that can be terrific $50 million a year e-commerce ventures that don't require outside capital. And it can be a great business, lifestyle business for you and your family. Uh, and you don't want to raise venture capital. First of all, the VCs wouldn't be interested, but even no, they if they were, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah, and it could be toxic to, to the venture anyway. If you if you were to go down that path and it and it turned out that way, so you have to ask yourself a question. Assuming you do raise venture capital, and given the tough climate that we're in, you should try to bootstrap as long as you can. Bootstrap it and get as far as along the way, and uh, try to demonstrate as much of product fit as you can before seeking formal financing. And there are a lot of advantages of this. I went to in the book. There are many many advantages. I mean, one is you take smaller steps, and then when you make mistakes, and by the way, you will make mistakes, then they're going to be less costly. They'll be less costly mistakes. Second, you're going to be able to iterate faster because you're iterating through smaller steps. Uh, and then thirdly, you're, um, you are going to learn the most creative way forward. You're going to find the most creative path forward when you have added resources. So these are some of the advantages of bootstrapping, in, and it's to your advantage uh, to do it at any time, but it's particularly important in a tough investment climate. Let, let me say a few words yeah. about how to raise funds, uh, and then I'll hand over to you for exit. This is a huge topic, obviously. Yeah. We could have written a book about that or, you yeah. know, two 
but how to raise funds i mean the mistake you don't want to make is uh, get up one morning think okay this is the beginning of my fundraising process i'm going to send 200 emails and out of these i'll get two meetings 10 meetings and somebody is going to invest in my company it doesn't work that way uh the advice the advice <laughs> The advice we give to people is first do your homework. Uh, you know, not every VC invests in your type of company, in your type of founder, in your stage of development or whatever. And believe it or not, we see a lot of entrepreneurs making that mistake. So do your homework. And there is a lot to that. Second point, don't wake up one morning and reach out to these people and think they're going to invest in you. Build trust. You know, leverage your to get to people, to get warm intros. If you don't have them, reach out to people, keep on reaching out, but take into account that it's going to take time, okay, to get on people's agenda and to build the trust, okay? Um, and then there are a bunch of other things in, in the book about how to think about, uh, about approaching VCs and fundraising, but obviously the importance of a first impression and what you need to do for that, how to set the dominoes, don't go to your um, favorite investor first because you're gonna make a lot of mistakes, so you need to learn, listen from the feedback you get and learn, etc. And I'm gonna keep it yeah. to this because okay. uh, you, want, you might wanna say something about the importance um, of fundraising for your exit. Yes, if we, if we have the time. <laughs> yeah, let's give you a 30 seconds to see if we can follow it through. So go ahead. Well, if your fundraising is going to have a huge impact on the exit story. So you have to make sure you have retained exit optionality we talk about in the book, which meaning uh, do you have an exit off-ramp for a lesser exit? If that's a requirement, then you need to have exit optionality. Keep that in mind. Be capital efficient. And the last thing I'd say is to always be prepared contacts with your potential acquirers early on because there's so many uncontrollables that are going to hit you and exit will be forced upon you when you least expect it wow hey larry anything on your end no i mean i i, I only have one quick question which was just like scale so if you like we follow software obviously right so there is a billion dollar in sale wall that companies either get to and that's like the end of them or you get to, and then you become like ServiceNow, Salesforce, et cetera. What, what is that difference that gets a company to go from a billion to BAM or a billion to zombie zombie company? You, you know, those easy question to answer in, in 30 seconds, I must say. <laughs> I'm more um, like 15. But read the book. I, exactly, read the book. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of things that, that really influence your path from one billion to something else. Um, obviously, you know, it's with the leaders and the founding team and whether or not they stay in place or leave. Uh, the space to somebody else because it becomes a different ball game in terms of running that kind of company. It's about pivoting at the right time. I don't think there is any company that started off, reached one billion, and then onward without adding new things, adding strategy, and so forth. It's that execution, uh, and execution becomes difficult as of a certain stage. It's about hiring and the team and the skills you have on board, etc. So it's, it, it's impossible to say one thing, but it's a bunch of things that that you need to get right, um, you know, basically shoot as a rocket to the moon. But I think it does start with the founding team and, um, you know, the skills of that team to basically keep on being the ones pushing the ball for that company or not. We talk about what's your 2.0, basically, and, and that is the challenge. And, and all the companies we, we spoke to had that challenge. You know, very, very true. We're here with Catalina Daniels, Jim Sherman, author of Smart Startups, Smart Startups. what every entrepreneur needs to know, advice from uh, 18 HBS founders. And of course, more importantly, you can get it on Amazon. It just came out October 10th, hot off the presses, and it's published by Harper. So thanks a lot so much for being on the show, and we'll be reading the book. Thanks. Thank you, Ray. Thank you so Thank much. You, Thanks, Larry. Larry. Thank Bye -bye. you, Larry. Bye-bye. Thank you. Oh, my God, Larry. What an amazing show. 
I was just I was just trying to figure out that billion dollar mark. I've seen it in software for years. Well, it could be the ten to hundred million dollars if you're not a tech company, right? You could definitely see that popping up. Oh yeah. I mean it's a different ballgame entirely. Yeah. So we're definitely seeing that across the board. So quick summary on your end. What do you think? Uh I mean, was this really dysfunction? <laughs> well, I mean, revenue ops and marketing and sales, that's always dysfunction. I mean, yes. it just is. And not only that, they have so many different systems. I mean, it's it's a mess. Um, cybersecurity, very interesting stuff. I mean, I do wonder, like, that ransomware calculator idea, I think, like, you know, just something needs to be thought through, especially what you do after you pay the ransomware. Um, and then the startup stuff was just interesting because, you know, it's it's when do you know you have a good idea? And that feedback part was the big takeaway for me. No, I love the unconventional wisdom. Exactly. That is amazing there. So, yeah. But hey, next week, there will be no show. But the week after episode 340, because we have Constellation Connected Enterprise, uh, we'll have Dr. Gita Nayar, Executive Medical Director, former at Salesforce. And we've got James Burstow, CEO of Argonon, and author of The Flexible Method, Prepare to Prosper in the New Global Crisis. And we'll have probably one additional special guest. So thanks a lot for listening to the show. If it's 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on a Friday, catch Disrupt TV. Thanks all for listening. Thanks a lot.